son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh but according to the spirit. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. But those who live in accordance with the spirit have their minds set on what the spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. This is the word of the Lord. A scorpion uh, once asked a frog for a ride across a river. Now the frog was not an idiot and said to the scorpion, you're going to sting me. Why would I possibly agree to that request? There's no way that I'm going to carry you on my back. The scorpion responded with indignation, I'm not going to sting you. It's going to be fine. I would never sting you. Why would I do that? If I stung you and I'm on your back in a river, we'll both drown. That is counterintuitive. That is illogical. It's going to be fine. The frog decides that the scorpion makes sense, and so he agrees to the trip. Midway across the river, the scorpion stings the frog, and they both drown. As they are drowning, coming under the water, the frog gasps his last breath and says, why, why did you do that? And the scorpion replies, it's my nature. Nobody wants to be the scorpion. Nobody wants to be known or understood to be a slave to their most base inclinations. We like to think actually that we are free, that given the opportunity, we will choose what is wisest, and best. Unfortunately, there's a lot of evidence to suggest that hum- humans often do the opposite. A criminal released from jail is, is brought back only a few weeks later, having reoffended. A habitual gossip seems unable to stop talking and slandering people. A toxic manager seems somehow hardwired to shame and embarrass their employees. And most people, if really pressed, will admit that they find it really hard to change, to change for the better. And the struggle is real um, even for Christians, perhaps especially for Christians, because we know the standard God set. The standard God sets is his moral law, and we're painfully aware that we fail to live up to it on a regular basis. In fact, sometimes we even willingly do the very things that we hate. And so we feel like the scorpion sometimes, uh, stuck in in cycles of destructive behaviour. And it seems sometimes the only way we could truly change is if our natures truly change. If we could only become less scorpion-y and a bit more froggy, And so we do try. We try and change the very things that we feel like are weighing us down or holding us back. And we exercise and eat healthy and drink two litres of water a day, a good night's sleep, 
getting off social media, all the things that social media also tell us are the way to change, ironically. But here's the thing. At the heart of here, in in Romans chapter 8, one of the most famous books in the Bible, in one of the most famous chapters of the most famous books of the Bible, is this remarkable claim by its author, Paul, that yes, you can change, but only, only, only if someone changes your nature. Not you, but God. Now, as we approach this chapter, um, we have to recognize we've joined the story halfway. There are a full seven chapters before. Um, some of you, I think, in your missional communities may have read through that during the week, which is a great thing to do. Um, in the previous chapters, Paul, this remarkable genius, um, investigates human nature. And he argues that, like the scorpion, there is something wrong with our hearts, with our natures. That real change is not just hard, it's impossible because sin, the desire to reject God and promote yourself, is too strong. That's the bad news. He brings it out in the first few chapters. But then he gives the good news that actually there is a greater power at work in the world, that Jesus has offered redemption through his death and resurrection, that change really is possible Because Jesus did the impossible by dying and rising again. And so in Romans 8, we get this exploration of what change looks like, at least in the beginning of the chapter. And he'll flow it through into other topics as we go through the next five weeks. But here in these first verses, he says, to change, you need to drop two anchors into your hearts. To anchors based on God and what God has done. And the first anchor is what God has done for us, what we call justification. And the second anchor is what God is doing in us, what we call sanctification. So if you want to remember two really important terms that theologians use, but we're all theologians because we all think about God, so we should learn two. It's justification, what God has done for us, and, and sanctification, what God is doing in us. So let's drop that first anchor called justification. Uh, a, a while ago, I read a great book by Nick Hornby called How to Be Good. I was struck by the title. Has anyone read it? How to Be Good? Oh, Laura has. Great. Uh, it's a really interesting story. Um, it tells the story of a woman called Katie uh, who, at the beginning of the book, we find she's cheating on her husband with a man called Stephen. And so much of the book is about her battle with guilt. This is what she writes, or what she says, Nick Hornby writes. I thought the Stephen thing was something I could just brush off like a crumb, leaving no trace of anything behind. But But if it was a crumb and I'd brushed it off, well, now it's beginning to look less like a crumb and more like a red wine stain or a grease spot a nasty and very visible patch of Indian takeaway sauce. Hornby is great. He's light-hearted language, but he's describing how Katie is dealing with her guilt. First, she tries to convince herself that what she's done isn't really all that bad. And so like many modern people, she assumes that her actions were just a bit of fun, nothing too wrong, nothing that couldn't be gotten over quickly, but the guilty feelings keep coming back. And then she tries to justify her actions. She tells herself over and over again that she's a doctor. 
And more than that, a good person. And so she could be forgiven a little indiscretion. But even that doesn't work and the feelings keep coming. And she ends up saying this. She says, I'm a good person in most ways. But I'm beginning to think that being a good person in most ways doesn't count for anything very much if you're a bad person in one way. Being a good person in most ways doesn't count for anything very much if you're a bad person in one way. Nothing she does helps remove her feelings of condemnation. Now, in chapters 1 to 7 of Romans, Paul agrees, or Nick Hornby agrees with Paul, and Paul agrees with Nick Hornby, whichever way around you want to put it, they agree that sin leaves an indelible mark, that when we've done wrong, we know it. It can't be brushed off. It can't be ignored forever. It's, it's like a grease spot on our souls. And you can try and deal with it by pretending sin isn't really sin. You can try and cover it over with good deeds. But ultimately, nothing can wash it away for good. Our attempts are nothing but band-aid solutions. They're temporary fixes, but underneath the wound just festers away. Romans 1 to 7 is setting up the problem, setting up the issue. Romans 8 verse 1 is the balm, the soothing ointment. 8 verse 1, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. Let's unpack that a little bit. Therefore, in other words, because of everything Paul has said in the previous seven chapters, therefore now, at this point in history, something has happened to change everything. Therefore now, there is no condemnation. The very thing humanity has vainly tried to be rid of has been done away completely. For those who are in Christ Jesus, for those who by faith are united with Jesus, this penniless teacher from Nazareth, this, he is the key to it all. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. Paul uses the word law a number of different ways in his letters, and so it can be a bit confusing. But here he doesn't mean the Jewish law, the moral law of God, but as a synonym for force or power. In other words, the power of God's life-giving spirit has vanquished the power of sin and death. And in doing so, has worked a miracle for those who trust in him. And so for every Christian, Paul makes this remarkable claim that a universal verdict has been overturned from guilty to innocent from shame to honour, from condemnation to vindication. This is our justification. This is what God has done for us. And we all have an instinct towards justification. That's why many people try and convince themselves that they really aren't all that bad, like Katie does in How to Be Good. And the instinct is a right one. We, we just know that we need to be justified. We know that we need to be washed clean. It's just that our attempts to do it ourselves are prone to failure. A criminal 
cannot proclaim themselves innocent. Only the judge can do that. And so how can Paul say that there, in Christ there is no condemnation? Well, the true beauty of the gospel is that we can only be acquitted, we can only be set free, we can only be declared innocent if we are joined to, united with the one who must be declared innocent. And this is what Paul unpacks in the next two verses, in verses three and four. <clears throat> he says, God the Son remarkably became flesh, took on our humanity. Jesus was without sin, but his body and spirit paid the guilt price. And so sin and death fell on him with devastating results. On the, on the cross, Jesus took on the role of the most despicable criminal that the ancient world knew, an insurrectionist, a rebel. And what those watching on couldn't know was that he was standing in for them and for us, those who have rebelled against God, who have broken his law. The cross was not a moment then of dreadful defeat, but a sign for all ages that sin has been condemned. And Paul uses some language from the Old Testament. He says, Jesus has become a sin offering. You remember our studies in Leviticus last year? Jesus has become the pure, spotless animal that stands in the place and dies for corrupt people. And so it's not God's people who are condemned. Sin itself is condemned on the cross. As Jesus died, so sin's power died with him. As Jesus rose, so we rise with him, sharing in his innocence, sharing in his vindication. Not our own, but in his. That's how closely united you are with Jesus. It's not just that Jesus died to forgive our sins. Every Christian knows that. Every Christian talks about that. It's true. It's wonderful. But if that's all he did, then it would be like a drowning person being thrown a lifesaver and yet left to float in the middle of the ocean. If only our sins are forgiven, then we are left in neutral, not going backwards, true, but not going forwards either. Jesus, Forgiveness of sin is only one side of the coin. And so Paul writes here, and so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us. So Jesus bears our sins. Yes, he pays the price. But more than that, we share in his righteousness. There's a word that theologians use to describe this, and it's called imputation. It's not a word we use very often. But if you say that, uh, if I was to say to someone, you've imputed bad motives to me, I mean that they are treating me as if my motives were bad, right? We use that word. In the Christian faith, um, God treated Jesus as if he were as utterly sinful as humanity. That's why the great darkness came over the land, the suffocating blackness of God's wrath when he died. But God treats us as if we were as utterly righteous, pure and spotless as Jesus is. He treats us as if our moral record is sparkling. You get this? Our sins imputed to Jesus. His righteousness imputed to us. Our sins on him, his righteousness to us. He treated as 
the worst of the worst, us treated as the best of the best. And so if you've ever felt like Katie trying to remove the stain of bad choices, I don't even need to ask the question, we all have. As if whenever we've felt like, no matter how much we scrub, it's soaked in so deep that it just won't come out. Then we know that that righteousness, that justification, is, cannot come through good works or hard works. It's something you accept when you run out of things to offer for it. When you are willing to stop trying to pay for something that is offered free. When you hear the voice of the Father over you saying the same thing he said to Jesus at his baptism, this is my beloved son or daughter of whom I am well pleased. That is what God has done for us. Once for all, our status has changed. If you believe in Jesus, it is always true for you, no matter how you feel, whether you feel close to God or far from God, whether you feel spiritually alive or slumbering. That is true for you if you have faith bigger than a mustard seed. That is our justification how we are made right. But it doesn't stop there. What has been done for us now flows into something that is being done in us. And this is our sanctification. Uh, Think about our friend the scorpion again. Now let's say his nature really was changed and he became less stingy as 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 a creature. Now, let's say, he, and then the frog again asks him for a ride, and we get across the other side, halfway through the river, and still the scorpion stings the frog. Now, that wouldn't work, would it? Because he's not a stingy kind of person anymore. He's a non stingy kind of being. In other words, what's true inside necessarily has to reflect what's true outside. What is inside true about us needs to flow out of us to be reflected so that we become not something different inside and outside. Paul says that in Jesus, the righteous requirements of the law are fulfilled in us. This doesn't just mean that Jesus has, uh, has completed the record of perfection that we need, but that increasingly we begin to act like that too. Not perfectly in this life, but increasingly. God's law requires a heart that wants to obey God wants to increasingly step into the kind of life we are designed for, a life of unselfish, humble, joy-filled service of God and neighbor. That's what he wants, the righteous requirements of the law. He wants us to step into that, to embrace that, to live it out. Now, there's all sorts of reasons to try and be good. You can be moral because it makes you feel good, or because you were brought up that way, or because other people will think you're a decent person or because it will help you gain greater standing in the community, or simply because that's just the right thing to do. But all those reasons are kind of self-sabotaging because they're all kind of selfish. Ultimately, the reason for being good is a bad one, to self-promote or self-soothe. I recently said to someone um, that uh, Christians do not have a monopoly on morality. (laughs) There are lots of people who aren't Christians 
or all sorts of other faiths or no faith at all who are nice people, good people. We don't have a monopoly on morality. What we do have is on grace. What we do have is on morality that flows out of the right motivation. Not to gain something ultimately for ourselves, but simply because we have been given something. And verse, uh, verses 5 to 8 explains this. Uh, verse 5, those who live according to the flesh have their mind set on what this flesh desires. But those who live in accordance with the spirit have their mind set on what the spirit desires. Uh, and so here's the, the difference with someone, someone who trusts in Jesus and someone who doesn't. The first person only has one power at work in them. That's the power of sin. They're naturally inclined towards selfishness. And selfishness sneakily corrupts and infects everything that we do. And so their desires will master them at every turn. But the moment God places the gift of faith in a person's heart and that faith reaches out and embraces Jesus, then everything changes. A new power moves in. A new power moves into that heart, into the, the innermost part of that person. A new power begins to wage war against the sinful nature. And what's that new power? It's the Holy Spirit. A new controlling influence. The word uh, Paul uses for this um, is a mindset, having the right mindset, the mindset of the Spirit. I like the term um, John Mark Comer, another uh, pastor and author, uses a life script. A life script are the assumptions, the cues, the hopes and dreams that you have for your life. A life script written by your flesh is crafted towards fulfilling your own desires. It's about achieving the life you want, often at the expense of others. But a life script that flows out of the renewing work of the Spirit is different. It's turned not inward, but upward and outward. It's not focused on fulfilling its own desires for pleasure and satisfaction, but on God's desires for you and for the world. And this might sound like a terrible life, actually. This, people have said that's oppressing. Who would want a God who just tells you what to do all the time? But actually, if you think about it, it's the secret to unlocking a truly satisfying life. Because what destroys joy in our lives. Anxiety, guilt, anger, despair, pride. Anxiety, the fear of the future. Guilt, the regrets of the past. Anger, wanting revenge against others. Despair, feeling impotent to change things. Pride, feeling superior to others. And those, those feelings and attitudes flow out of humans to each other and they cause pain. The truth is that God does want our worship but he also wants our flourishing. And he knows actually that to worship God, to make him truly the most important thing in your life, for him to attract your, your highest desires, your greatest hopes and dreams, well, that unlocks flourishing for us. Not anxiety, but confidence, knowing that he is for you. Not guilt, but vindication, he's forgiven you. Not anger, but forgiveness. If you're forgiven, you can forgive others. Not pride, but humility. If we're sinful, then we can't despise others because we're all on the same playing field. Not despair, but hope. Because if Jesus is risen, then the future is glorious. The Spirit's work is to bring you under the life-giving, freedom-flowing law of God. And for that law 
to not crush you because you can't live up to it, but in, invigorate you as it flows out from your hearts. Because as a Christian, you begin to really just want that kind of life. And you know that it comes from wanting God above all. But there's a problem with this, of course. As, even as Christians, we struggle to change. We struggle to gain the life script of the Spirit. And so there is this internal war that rages. And like Paul said in the previous chapter, sometimes we feel unable to do the good we want to do, and instead we do the evil. Why is that? Why sometimes should we be like frogs, but more like scorpions? Why? Well, we shouldn't think of it as an internal civil war. Two equal and opposite, equally powerful sides, the spirit and the flesh, the spirit and our own self battling it out. No, something different is better. One commentator suggests a metaphor truer to Paul in Romans is that our hearts are like fortresses, um, besieged by an evil tyrant who used to be in residence but has been chucked out. He's been forced out, but he's determined to get back in. And he attacks the fortress. And sometimes it's an all-out frontal attack coming at you. And sometimes it's more insidious, like a Trojan horse sneaking in. We feel the attacks keenly. The ramming at the door, the arrows flying at the windows, the shouts and screams of the invaders. But in that moment, we have a choice. We can feel afraid, we can feel anxious. Or we can listen to the voice of our new king. And his voice says, come with me. Come into the innermost part of the castle. Come with me into the throne room. And there he tells us not to fear. They can scream all they like. They can throw their stones and fire their arrows. But they won't get in. Paul says that if you are united with Christ... Then God sits on the throne of your life and his spirit ushers us into that hidden place because he lives in us. And he's won the battle, but sometimes the battle will still feel fierce. What does that mean exactly? How does the spirit operate in that sense? Well, here's how the spirit helps us. And Romans 8 is all about the spirit. The Spirit's job is to take what Jesus has done in history, truly living and dying and rising again, and make it real for us. He takes the truth that our sins are forgiven and helps us experience its forgiveness, the peace that comes from it. He takes the truth that our sins are forgiven and helps us experience forgiveness. He takes the truth that we have Christ's righteousness and helps us experience God's true and unqualified acceptance. He calls us to lift our gaze out of our situations and fix them on the cross. And so that as we do, it becomes less like looking at a beautiful painting in an art gallery of a garden and more like walking through that garden, seeing it, but also smelling and experiencing the sights and sounds and aromas. That's the difference. The spirit what takes what could otherwise be a boring interesting bit of history, the life of Jesus, and makes it 
beautiful. It's pure sweetness. And so that as we experience Christ's offering for himself, we can say, oh, the goodness of Jesus. And as we experience God's full acceptance, we can say, oh, the joy of knowing him. And so what is our sanctification? Our sanctification is that God will change us. That is inevitable. But how fast and in what areas relies on us responding to the Spirit's call, his soft, sweet voice to say, come and experience the goodness of the gospel. That Jesus was condemned so that we might be vindicated. That Jesus was punished so we are released. That Jesus was stripped to rags so that we might be clothed in the pure white of his righteousness. That we were powerless to change our natures. And so God's son took on our nature and transformed it into something beautiful. Change still doesn't happen easily or quickly. Sin digs its talons in and is not willing to let go of what it once owned. And so sanctification is a lifelong process and we won't see it completed until we are with Jesus forever. But in the meantime, there is a power within you and within me that called stars into being. And so as we increasingly understand that we have been justified, once for all, no matter how you feel any given day, this is true. You've made, made righteous in Christ. He's forgiven your sins. You have a glorious future to look forward to. And increasingly, as you know that, experience that, then you will change because as you know you are loved, loved by the God who calls the dead to come to life, then that will inevitably impact every part of your life. What parts, you may ask? Well, every part. But in the rest of this series, we'll explore a little bit more some of the um, key ones that will make an infinite amount of difference in how we live and will adapt and write a new life script for us so that we might truly be called amongst all the peoples on this world the people of God, the people of Christ. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, it's so hard sometimes to feel like we might change. It's so hard to face up to those arrows and stones and screams that come from the enemy seeking to kill our joy and take our peace. And so far we come back again to this most beloved of passages that now there is no condemnation in Christ Jesus because the law of the Spirit has put to death the law of sin and death. So we thank you for that, Father. We experience that today. Just the goodness of who you are and what you've done. May we go from this place with our heads ringing with that good news. Amen.